0: We're going to be reading in Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One of the popular mantras of our culture today is that you don't want to end up on the wrong side of history, or people will say, this other group is on the wrong side of history. And The implication is that society is on this long, steady march of progress in terms of like what we know today versus our forefathers, you know, and and how progressive we are in our morality. We just just see the world differently. We see the world better than people that came before us. We are wiser, more moral. And the other implication is like if you don't get on board with the latest and greatest beliefs about ethics and morality— then you'll be left behind. And it's not just that people will believe differently than you. It's that the, the idea, it's, it's a shaming mechanism. It's like other people will look back at you and realize like, oh, poor you. you, you poor buffoons that believed incorrectly and ended up on the wrong side of history. Well, frankly, I'm not worried about being on the wrong side of history. And that's a whole conversation for itself. What does concern me is ending up on the wrong side of God. And this text is surprisingly binary. What I mean is, it says either God is for you or God is against you. There isn't this large pool of people that God is kind of lukewarm or has mediocre feelings toward, like, ah, you're okay, like you're not... As bad as these people that I don't like, nor are you as righteous and holy and loving as these people that I really adore, but, you know, you're okay. If you were to look again at this text, it says there's a person God delights in and someone that he takes no pleasure in. There's a person God declares innocent, and there's a person God declares guilty. There's a person God gives attention to, and there's a person that God ignores, there's a person God loves and there's a person God hates, to use the word of the Psalms. There's a person God invites in and there's a person he casts out. There's a person God prospers, there's a person he destroys. And I thought if you just if, if you were new to Christianity altogether, if you were new to the Bible, you opened the Bible and Psalm five was the first thing you read, and this was the only thing you knew from God, I wonder how you would respond to this news. I think there are a couple different possible reactions. You could say, well, I don't believe in God, so who cares? Or you could say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in this version of God. Like, my God exudes kindness and love and gener. He just gonna loves everyone. He accepts everyone. And, and so while I believe in God, like, this is not my version of God. Or if you were really thoughtful, I think you could read this and say, well, I do believe in God. And I do believe his word is true. These are incredibly challenging words. But how could I be sure I'm the person that God blesses rather than the person that he doesn't listen to? By the way, if you find yourself in one of the first two groups, if you're like, I don't believe in God. Or if you're like, I believe in God, but this is like an Old Testament God. Or I don't like this version of God. I would just, I would just ask you to understand this. Truth is truth whether you believe it or not. If you have a big grease fire raging in your kitchen, you know, would you throw water on it? And some of you maybe instinctively would because you're like, well, I just know, everyone knows like water puts out a fire. The reality is because of the properties of oil and fire and water, If you were to add water to a grease fire, it would instantly superheat and cause this like volcano of oil, like boiling oil to come at you. You would be severely burned and you would actually cause the fire to spread. And what you believe about, like everyone just knows that water puts out fire, would be completely irrelevant. Your belief would not change the properties of oil and water. Okay? The same is true theologically and much more seriously. That what you believe, what your opinions are, don't actually change the properties or the, the character traits, the attributes of God. So we'd be wise and we'd actually be blessed. We'd be joyful to learn what it is to stand on God's side. And um, actually, I changed my theme this morning because I realized as I was driving back last night thinking about some things. The theme of this psalm is James chapter 4 verse 6 which says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What's interesting, actually, is when you come to James chapter 4, verse 6, James says that he's referring to something in the Old Testament. And if you were to look at the Old Testament, you don't find this exact phrase, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But you do find things like Psalm 5. I almost wonder if he's summarizing an entire psalm by saying... Here is a biblical truth. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So all I want to do with you this morning is I want to talk first about this person that God opposes. I'm going to share some of their character traits and their end. Like what happens with people who believe and act this way. Flip to the positive. Like here's now the person that God welcomes. Again, attributes and what is their end. And then I want to do a couple like, so what? Okay, if you believe that they're like, it's this binary in God's mind. And you want to end up on the right side of history, meaning the right side of God and his opinion of you. So what? What do we do? Okay. So the, first of all, the person God opposes in their character. And I'm going to give you like four traits here, okay, that just to summarize the text instead of going word by word through it. The first character trait we find of the person God opposes is that they're rebelling against God's moral law. And you find this in verse 4, words like wickedness and evil. Verse 5... Also, like transgressions and rebellion in verse 10. The point of all these words is that they're, they're people who act with contempt or opposition toward the intent of God's moral law. And all these words kind of stack up one on top of another in like this Hebrew poetic way of reinforcing this idea of these are people that are overstepping God-given boundaries. And they're just saying, I don't recognize God's boundaries for my life. I have different boundaries, and the point of, we read words like evil and wicked, and we think a certain thing, probably. But the point is not that anyone who's evil or wicked is as like, flagrantly vile as they could possibly be. I mean, there are all different degrees of rebellion. You know you know this in junior high They're like there's like the really rebellious like the bad kids but then like i was one of those kids that had some like some internal rebellion going on but was smart enough to like couch it in like being the good kid so you get less attention and you can actually continue to rebel and it's not like one honors god and the other dishonors god it's just their their degrees of rebellion like you, the, the reality is some people do not violate god's law as much as, or as extensively as other people, and the harm that they cause is not all the same. But the question is, are we honoring the intent of what God requires in his moral law? Again, I'm not talking about going back to this very civil ceremonial law of Israel that the New Testament actually says you're not under. I'm not talking about do you eat lobster and enjoy like some other good food that's off limits to the Hebrews in the Old Testament. I'm talking about like the moral code. So the Ten Commandments and things like that. So are we living in conformity? Are we living in rebellion against God's moral law? Uh, Second character trait is that they're dishonest and deceitful. So verse 6, notice, mentions those who speak lies and the deceitful person. I just want to say there are many ways to deceive. And some of you may know someone, or you may even be someone who's very practiced in like, well, I didn't like outright lie, which is a form of lying. There's also things like half-truths, like false pretense. There is lying by omission. You know, when you owe someone the truth and you you kind of make it look like, just as an example, you make it look like someone is guilty by innuendo. And you can be like, well, I didn't say that they were guilty. And it's like, no, but the things that you did say led people to believe that this was the guilty party. And by not saying anything additional about this other party, you made it sound like they were innocent, when in fact you knew they were completely guilty and this person was innocent. And stuff like that goes on all the time where one of the basic attributes of the person God, God opposes is that they're like just conniving. They're thinking about like, how can I communicate my narrative? And yes, if I have to deceive people or outright lie to people or trick people, like that's okay. And you notice verse 9, here's two additional ways to be deceitful. Verse 9 says, there is no truth in their mouth and they flatter with their tongue. I think flattery is obvious. It's like just when you're like kind of, we would say, maybe like kissing up to someone. There's, there's smooth talk. There's false praise. You're, you're trying to kind of lower someone's guard or build someone up in a way that is unhealthy by essentially lying to them, by by being like, oh, I, I think you're so amazing. And you're like, he thinks I'm amazing. And meanwhile, they're maybe stabbing you in the back. But there's a, there's a form of deception to flattery. But go back to this first phrase in verse 9. There is no truth in their mouth. It literally means there is no established, proven, or reliable word in their mouth. In other words, in contrast to the word of God, which is established and reliable and firm, the idea here is they just make baseless and unsubstantiated claims. And they're telling people, like, you should live a certain way, and there aren't consequences to this, and actually you'll feel better if you do this. And, and, And the idea is, like, the dishonesty is... Wait, have you tracked that all the way out to see that that is a proven and reliable claim about how other people should live their lives and what they should do with their minds and their bodies and their emotions? No, you haven't, and it's a form of deception. The third attribute of the person God opposes is that they're boastful and proud. I think this is probably the easiest to understand. Boastful is just, you know, proud, arrogant, pompous, but the word also refers to a lifestyle of taking something wholesome and flaunting it or mocking it publicly. There's that that nuance is built into this word boastful. It's looking at, you know, you could you could look at like so-called like traditional marriage and be like, that's preposterous, that's ridiculous. And built into this word of boasting is the idea of taking something good that the Bible declares good and just being like, nobody thinks that way anymore. Or taking something bad and openly flaunting it and trying to make it look beautiful and fun and like you're missing out because you think differently, boastful and proud. And then four... The fourth characteristic is reveling in destruction and even death. This is verse 6, refers to the bloodthirsty, and it's something literally like a person of blood or one guilty of shedding blood. And it's one thing to do like literal physical harm to other people and like shed their blood, even killing them. But it's another to go on and actually be proud about it rather than remorseful. To be like, I just don't care that much about the sanctity of life and I'm proud about that. Verse 9 talks more about this destruction. Two additional phrases worth mentioning here it says the their inmost self is destruction and their throat is an open grave. This idea of the inmost self being destruction, the idea is their inner person, their their heart, their soul, their thinking, their motives, their affections, actually sometimes is literally translated even their womb is a place, a source of malice and misery and devastating ruin instead of a place of life and health and protection and peace. The idea of a throat being an open grave is just highlighting the fact that the the words that are coming from their mouths are fomenting death and decay instead of life and peace. Now, let me just review those. We said rebelling against God's moral law, dishonest and deceitful, boastful and proud, reveling in destruction and even death. And my question to you is, where do you observe those four attitudes and actions in our culture today? I would even ask it this way. Who is deliberately embodying the ethos of Psalm 5? Because when I read this, I was like, wait, didn't we just literally come through a month of people looking at God's moral law and saying, nope. We're going to do something completely different than God's moral law, and we're going to be proud about it. In fact, we're going to use the word pride to describe what we're going to do. We're going to be dishonest and deceitful. We're going to spread a narrative of even self-harm and tell everyone it's not harmful, it's good, when even more and more secular medical and psychological evidence is to the contrary, reveling in destruction and even death. I thought of American politics and political parties of just, are are there not platforms you look at? And you're like, if you just went right down that list of against God's moral law, dishonest, deceitful, boastful, proud, reveling in destruction and even death, you would say that's descriptive of like whole swaths of the American political scene that we live under. Talking to some police officers just this week, I was thinking of the drug crisis as an example of this how you have a a rebellion against God's moral law and how you even view your own body and life and the sanctity of, of your health. And there's so much deceit and dishonesty baked into the drug crisis of, you know, do this, take this, and you'll feel better. It'll help. And many of you know it doesn't help. It actually makes things significantly worse. Reveling in destruction and even death. You know, seeing this week that the, what was it, the Colorado Highway Patrol, like, just confiscated the most fentanyl ever on a U.S. interstate highway, like last week, over 100 pounds of fentanyl, when a few grains of fentanyl is enough to kill a person, okay? That is a culture that revels in decay and destruction and death for the sake of profit. And we could go through a a bunch of things, like how... You know, not not everyone, and I'm not certainly I know like teachers and principals and all kinds of people, even in our own congregation, who are doing a fantastic job. But but public education and higher education as a whole is especially higher education is a place that that just tells false narratives and just everyone believes it. And they can be directly contrary to God's moral law, they can be boastful and proud, they can revel in destruction and death, and, and that's kind of that culture. Or social media. Again, there may be good sides to these things and, and healthy ways for Christians to use them or to benefit from them, but there are also, this, there's a very dark underbelly. Um, lest you think I'm just talking to, to like, about well, people out there, like, what about church? What about a church that's sold out to the God of, like, cultural acceptance? And so they no longer can say, well, the Bible says, thus saith the Lord, so even though my personal opinion is not really engaged around this particular issue like the bible does say this and it's really important to me to stand where the bible stands on that issue that's that clear but maybe most importantly rather than just identifying issues out there that are like god's opposed to them i'm i'm curious where do you see these attitudes and actions lurking in your own heart Of just a a dismissiveness of God's moral law, you may read something in Scripture and just like maybe even something just like rises up within you, and you're like, "Well, I don't agree with that." Could that be like the beginnings of a rebellious attitude, rather than saying like, "I don't," that rubs me the wrong way. Like, I need to study this more. I need to talk this out with some friends who are walking with God to help me understand what what is God saying here. What is His intent with this? rather than just getting my back up and maybe turning to rebellion. Okay, let's, let's jump ahead to, like, their end, okay? What, what happens to people that are, that, like, these are their characteristics? A couple things here. Number one, you notice there's a separation from God. Verse 4 says, "'Evil may not dwell with you, God.'" Verse 5 says, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Verse 10 says, because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out for they have rebelled against you. And it's this simple. I go back to the properties of God. Sin and God don't mix. That's what the word holiness means. It means set apart. Holiness does not mean self-righteousness. Holiness does not mean that God is like austere and arrogant and just angry all the time. But it does mean he's set apart from sin, literally set apart from sin. And he's literally set apart from sinners forever because sin doesn't come home to live in God's holy place that he's preparing for us. Okay, so we all have to figure out a way to deal with our sin rather than just boasting in our sin, doubling down on our sin. And by the way, don't freak out. If you just read this chapter and you're like, wait, God cast these people out? He does, yes. But don't worry. He's casting out people that didn't want God to begin with. It's not like he's taking people who are like climbing the, you know, out of the pit of hell. Like, God, I just want you so badly. Show me yourself. I love you. I want to be with you. It's not, he's not banishing people like that. He's, he's banishing people that are turned against him. Separation from God. Number two, notice there's a hostility with God. Verse five says, you hate all evildoers. Verse six, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago because the psalmists are just this blunt. God hates sin and those who practice it. We say, hate the sin, love the sinner. And sometimes God is actually like, well, I hate both. And that sounds very jarring to our modern sensibilities. And I think that's because we have a very, we have a very Western and we have a very sentimental way of thinking about both love and hate. That's why we can just throw out phrases like, love is love. And everyone's like, yeah. And it's like, on what planet, I mean, first of all, that's a tautology, love is love. It, it, that says nothing. But on what level, like only on a sentimental level, does a statement like that even make sense? It doesn't make sense biblically. It doesn't make sense rationally. We have very sentimental ideas of love and hate. So we think if God hates someone, it's got to be like this vindictive, petty, like junior highish. ish like, well, I just hate you. But that's, that's how we throw out the word. It's like someone hurts us. A best friend is like, I hate you. And we try to teach our kids, like, there are certain things you don't say. Like, find the right words to express what it is that you're actually trying to say, but like, you don't hate. The, the idea of God's hatred is, again, not, not this just blow up petty hatred, it is a very settled and established posture of, I am opposed to, I am hostile toward rebellion. Strangely enough, this is good news. It is good news that God would hate things that are making you and me less than who we were intended to be, being restored in his image. And reading this, the fact that God even writes this rather than just dropping the hammer on people who are in rebellion to him, is in itself a warning. It's a call to repentance of like, do not land on the Lord's bad side with him opposed to your actions, Thirdly, the end, dealing with their own narrative and guilt. Verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. And the idea is simply, we all have to reckon with our sin because we're all sinners. We're all broken. So we can either take the the biblical good news gospel solution of saying, Lord, I, I confess that I am in sin. Like, will you pay this for me? And he says, yes, in Jesus, I will. Or... What he's saying is if you reject God's solution, then you have to figure out a way to reckon with your own sin. You have to bear your own guilt. And the reality is we can't do that. The other th- phrase that he has here is, in a sense, let them fall by their own counsels. You've got you to gotta untangle your own narratives. This is like the story in the Bible, if you know it, of um, in the days of Mordecai and Queen, Queen Esther, where Haman is plotting and planning this evil thing to take down the Jews because he has this petty hatred of Mordecai. So he plans this whole thing of like, uh, hey, king, what, what would you like to do for the person that you want to honor the most? What would you like to do for the person that you despise the most? And the king says, okay, well, we would honor a person this way and we would punish another person this way. So Haman's like, sweet, okay, the, who would the king want to honor more than me? So I'll set, set this aside. I'll go build a gallows to hang my enemies on. And then he falls by his own counsel. He, he got it completely wrong. By God's providence, the king actually ends up wanting to honor his enemy, Mordecai, the Jew, and to punish him. So he hangs on the gallows that he built for his enemy, okay? And this happens all the time where people plot some kind of harm against someone else, but their their narrative, like, they haven't thought far enough ahead. And the idea, I'm not trying to say, like, so think further ahead. I mean, the idea is just, like, you can plot and plan and counsel and advise, and you fall by your own counsel because... God's counsel is the one that corresponds to reality. God's one is the one that like fits the actual story of how we're made and redeemed. So dealing with our own narrative and guilt. And then number four, finally ruined. Verse six, you destroy those who speak lies. And just as you can't change the nature of oil and water, you can't change the nature of God and sin. You try to approach the blazing sun, you will be destroyed. You've got to come through some kind of safe protection if you want to approach the sun. Okay, so the wicked come to ruin because they're, they're unable to pay their debt. They're unable to wash away their guilt. They're unable to reckon with truth. They're ruined. That's the bad news. Now, let's talk for a few moments about the person God welcomes. And first of all, their character. Notice in opposition to the boastfulness and the pride, the first thing that the psalmist highlights about the godly person, or the person God welcomes, is a humble surrender to God. Verse 7, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Those are, those are attitudes and actions of, of reverence, of honor, of submission. Like, I'm not coming to you on full blast, just like, you do you, God, I'm going to do me, or I'm going to redefine you. It is, I'm coming on my knees. I'm coming bowed down, because you are worthy of my respect, you are worthy of my submission, you are worthy of my life. Verse two, notice he, as he's praying to God, he says, my God and king. It's the very opposite of the rebel. Instead of saying, like, I won't bow to your authority, he's saying, you are my king. I gladly acknowledge in your life, God. I acknowledge your authority. I acknowledge your leadership, and I am submitted to you. Number two, they're dependent on God. Verses 1 and 2 Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. What I love about this is just like the righteous don't even try to do life on their own terms. They're they're not trying to do life without reference to God. It's like, in the morning, first thing, I'm praying. I'm acknowledging you. I'm trusting you for today, that your mercies will be new today, that you'll provide for me today, that you'll lead me today. And then, I love this at the end, it's like, and then they watch. And it's like, so sometimes... You feel like you're just praying and then God's doing nothing. So what do you do? You just go fix it yourself, go do your thing. And, and there's this attitude of this humility and this dependence on God is like, I'm praying and praying and praying, but then I'm, I'm, wa- I'm waiting. I'm waiting on you, God. I'm watching for you to move, to lead, and I'm trusting you. This dependence on God is shown in verse 11 when the righteous take refuge in God I think the idea of, of refuge is like if you're in the mountains hiking, as many of you have been sometime, and like one of those big, huge thunderstorms pops up, and you're like, I should not be exposed. I should be sheltered. You know, and you're, you're crouched down, so you're not the highest thing above the tree line, which is not smart, you know, to be the highest thing above the tree line, so you're taking shelter because you understand exposure. And it's saying, this is what the person God welcomes is doing, is saying, I understand I have exposure because of my guilt. I have exposure because I'm a sinner. I have exposure because I I can't figure out parts of life on my own. I need someone to lead me. I have exposure to fear. I have exposure to danger. I have exposure to doubt. I have exposure to my own opinions and my own emotions. I have exposure to a thousand vulnerabilities. So I'm presenting myself moment by moment, God. You be my shelter. You be my protection. I depend on you. The next characteristic is that they're lovers of God's reputation, verse 11. Verse 11 refers to those who love your name. It's not just like, oh, Yahweh, I love that name. In this culture, the idea of of loving a name is like, I love everything that name represents. You ever do this? Sometimes you you you, you could go through the Bible and find these hundreds of names or qualities that are ascribed to God, like Yahweh, Jireh, Jehovah Jireh. And you just, you just park on that and just meditate on that and say, man, I love what that represents. I love that that means I don't have to be in control of my life or my world because there's, there's a gyra. There, there's a God who is powerful, who is in control. And it's the opposite of like taking God's name in vain. It's the opposite of just just not caring that much about his name. It's like, I'm not going to ignore your name. I'm going to know your name. I'm going to honor your name. I'm going to love your name. I want others to think well of God because of their interactions with me and what I know to be true of God. That's the idea of loving God's reputation. Now let's look at their end, okay? What happens to this person who is living this way with dependence on God, humility, loving God, pursuing God? The first thing it says is God hears their prayers. And actually, that's putting it too softly, So verse 1, when when he prays, give ear, he prays, consider. Verse 2, he prays, give attention to. He's saying, "God, God not only hears your prayers, God is listening for your prayers. You know the difference between those two things? You know how you're like sometimes, like often our kids are talking to us and we're like working on a laptop or reading a book or watching a hockey game or something. And like you, you hear your children asking for something, but your focus is somewhere else. And so it like takes several seconds. and You're kind of like processing through like, oh, Miles wants more cheese balls. Okay, that's, that's what it is. And then there's an answer. It's not just like I heard God or God hears me. I love this. It's like he, he's paying attention to me. He's, he's listening for the next time that I speak to him. He's, he's watching me even as I am called to watch him. He's considering both what does my child need and what am I going to do to respond. Secondly, notice God protects this person. And the psalmist assumes this, that God will spread his protection over them. Verse 11 but I love what, like, the, the picture is, if any of you seen those, uh, like, those weighted blankets you sleep with at night, and, the, like, I just picture that. Like, he just covers me with his shelter. It's like a shield. And sometimes the protection you need is defensive, like, like someone or something is coming at you to harm you or something has come erupting from out of your own heart, your own thoughts, that you need a defensive protection from. Sometimes it's more offensive, like, God's going to go be proactive, but, but this is the promise of the text, is that like, like that like that heavy blanket that helps you just be at peace and lets your body, like every joint, just kind of relax because God is in control. Like that's the concept here, long before that blanket was invented, okay? Um, God leads them, number three. God leads them, verse eight. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make your way straight before me. I love that. Like, make your way straight. God doesn't want his leadership in your life to be confusing. He actually wants it to be simple. He wants it to be straight. He wants it to be something that you can find. He's not, you know, it's not not like all of God's leadership in your life is an increasingly difficult level of an escape room or something, and you're like, okay, if we get all the right people in the room with the right knowledge, we can, together, we can figure out the next step in God's will. He's more like, no, 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 here's my book. Like, I'm gonna just tell you who I am, what I'm like, what I love, what I hate, Lloyd's here in the room, if Lloyd were standing up here preaching this sermon, he would talk to you just about like just a path of wisdom. Like God, God a lot of times is not giving you a uniquely specific, like here's your next step, Bob, with that specific thing. But he's saying like, know my character, know these principles of scripture, know the kinds of things that please me and disappoint me, and then take the next right step. And so often in our lives, God's leadership is that simple, that straightforward. God's not waiting on you to figure out the one thing you should do. He's like, do something that you know honors me on the authority of my word, and I am honored, and I do rejoice in you, my child. So God leads us. Number four, God welcomes them in by his steadfast love. Verse seven, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And I think the way he he says that is so important that he, he understands, I didn't earn my way in. He's not standing here in a boastful, proud way of like, well, the, the unrighteous can boast in their unrighteousness and their wickedness and their rebellion, but I'm going to boast in the fact that I'm not rebellious and I'm righteous and I'm good. That's not what he's doing. He's, he's boasting in one thing here, and that is hesed, the Hebrew word is what he uses, which is a, a faithful, loyal covenant love. I love the word, we don't use it anymore, but loving kindness, because there's, there's a dimension here of God's love will never, ever fail you. And, and baked into that word of love is all this grace and mercy and compassion and kindness, giving us what we don't deserve. And what he's recognizing here is through the abundance of your faithful, steadfast, covenant, love, and grace over my life, on that basis, you have welcomed me in. Because you have covered my sin. You have forgiven me. And you're saying, child, come home. Come into my presence. Know me. Fellowship with me. It's the Garden of Eden restored. Finally here, one more consequence for the righteous. God gives everlasting favor and joy. Verses 11 and 12. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy that those who love your name may exult in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. I love it he's saying those who seek refuge in God don't merely survive, they thrive. God's goal for your life is not just like, how can I get you through like hanging by a thread? But at least internally, I'm not talking about your finances or something. This isn't a health and wealth and prosperity gospel. You may be very, very sick. You may be very, very broken in different ways. But God wants to, to restore, to give you a refuge, to give you a joy in him, through him, for him. And just a, a, a zest for life as he favors you in a thousand different ways. That's what this blessing is here. Okay, so what? Um, just a couple of simple things here and we're done. Number one, I would say if this text is true and we believe it is, then discern your own attitudes and actions toward God. And I think it's easy to to pick on someone else out there. When someone else is rebelling against God's moral code, it's so easy for us to see it. It's so black and white. Like the Bible says this and you're doing this instead. Or we see other people's boastfulness. We see other people's pride. We understand other people's deception. We see when they're standing for decay or death. But the Bible is calling us here to not just be like, yeah, them. But it's saying, to what degree is God warning me? Like, is, is there a degree in my life where even if, if many of the things are aligned to God's moral code and God's character, you'd say, but I know this, this thing that I love is out of step. And that's an area where God is calling you to repentance. Okay, discern your own attitudes and actions toward God. Number two, take refuge in God and in his grace. Because the point of this text is not just to feel bad or to feel condemned or judged. And the point is not to simply do better, like try harder to be more righteous. The point is put your trust in a God who is your refuge, who is your righteousness, who wants to bless you abundantly. And I would even go beyond that to say like the point is not just to be like, okay, I need to be more moral, more honest, more humble. Okay, go. I'll be more humble this week. And, and that's not a bad goal. But I think looking beyond that, and we did this with Psalm 1, one of the points of a text like this is to actually say, God, who in the world could live like that? Like you, you say that you'll welcome the one who lives humbly, always dependent on you, always seeking refuge in you, honest, all these things. And you're like, but who could live like that all the time? And the New Testament's answer is Jesus Christ could live like that all the time. That he is this one in Psalm 5 that God the Father welcomes and blesses with abundant joy forever. And so our our goal is not just to be like, okay, how can I be more humble? Our goal is to be like, I'm with him. Like by faith, I'm with him. Like he, he did what I cannot do, what I have failed to do. So I'm not putting my hope of coming home through your steadfast love in me. I'm putting my hope of coming home through your steadfast love in him. That's what it means to take refuge in God and in his grace is to take refuge in Jesus and the hope of forgiveness and cleansing that he's offered. And then finally, live your entire life in reference to God. Because one last time I'll say that the wicked here are characterized by just a dismissive attitude toward God. Just, just fundamentally don't care about his law, don't care about his character. Like he says, this is right, I say something else. And, and they just go off. And again, they're not all just sending their brains out and being as rebellious as they can be, but they're just living life without reference to God. And the positive call here is like, if, if you're getting up first thing in the morning, you're like, I'm praying and sacrificing to you and then I'm, I'm watching and I'm waiting. It's like, God, I hunger and thirst for you. God, I want to see you active in my life. So I'm, I'm humbling myself before you and I'm living in awe of you. And as I think about your names, as I think about your attributes, as I think about what you did in the Bible times and what you've done in my own life, like I'm genuinely excited and in awe of you. And by the way, because you're the kind of God you are, I can be honest about my failures. I can be honest about where I've morally lapsed. in in any way of morally lapsing, any of the Ten Commandments, starting with, like, you shall have no other gods before me. Like, we've morally lapsed there, haven't we? But we're presented with a God if we're living our life in reference to him where it's like, God, forgive me. I love other things too much. I want other things too much. I'm pursuing other things sometimes instead of you, sometimes in addition to you because I don't think you're enough. Forgive me. So that, that pleading for forgiveness, which God is eager to forgive, that, that pleading for that joy, the grace, all of that, is what it means to live our entire life in reference to God. And remembering again this theme, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. May the Lord make us humble.